Hello, everyone. I am delighted to uh, be with you again here today, and even more delighted uh, because of the subject of our discussion for today. It is my great pleasure to introduce two things. Well, one thing and one person. I'm, I'm going to introduce you to the author of what I think is just a fabulous, fabulous casebook and one that can be read even when you're not in class. It's a great resource as well. Uh, Vanisha Sukdeo, who is a lawyer and PhD candidate at Osgoode Hall, and I am waiting for that PhD dissertation, which I know is going to be marvelous. And at the Osgood uh, uh, Hall Law School in Toronto, she currently works as a course instructor at a course instructor at Osgood Hall Law School, and in the uh, social science department at York University, teaching business associations and corporate governance and business law. Um, she's written two books focusing on the intersection between corporate law and labor and employment law and has published journal articles on a wide range of topics within both corporate law and labor and employment law. And I can attest that uh, these articles and her work is first rate and really worth reading. And I understand you continue to be busy. Uh, yes, I'm currently working on a book on stakeholder theory and looking at more recent cases from the Supreme Court of Canada. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And that that will add nicely, certainly a, from the perspective of an American lawyer, that will add a, a really nice and interesting comparative uh, element that we certainly will look forward to. Of course, uh, the Canadians have, have had um, well too much comparison from the American side. So it's nice to get a, a, a little bit back from, from the, the Canadian side. We're here to talk about uh, the, uh, a new book, Business Ethics and Legal Ethics. Uh, and the book explores the intersection between business ethics and legal ethics. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the back cover, uh, but I think it very nicely um, uh, gives us a, a, a basis for the discussion that's going to come. So uh, if you'll bear with me, um, we're looking at the growing number of joint degree programs like JD MBAs. Um, uh, uh, we see a need for students to learn about similarities and differences between the duties of lawyers and business people. Uh, and the book is meant to examine both business ethics and legal ethics uh, with, uh, through the learning tool of case studies, uh, which explores the same. And I can tell you, I've become a real fan of case studies, especially in um, in law schools. Um, not so much when I started, but there was a dearth of, of materials. But but this is really um, quite uh, useful. And the main focus of the book is that ethics has different meanings in different settings. And the book is meant to fill a gap in the literature, uh, as there are books that discuss business ethics and others that discuss legal ethics. But it's difficult to find a book that engages with both. And I can attest that that is the case. Um, and so enough for the, the description. Um, I was curious, so what, beyond this, this need for intersection, what drove you to actually write the book? Mm -hmm. Well, it was actually my students, the students in the joint program, the JD MBA at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, there is a joint program with the Schulich School of Business. And so those students would talk to me about, you know, being in both classes and how it is a very different mindset in the business school versus the law school. So that's what prompted me to think about, well, how is how do we um, think about ethics in those different contexts? All right. So you talk about ethics. When when I come at at this, 
uh, generally in my courses, I come at it from the from two contexts. One is the context of legal responsibility and and from an institutional context, either responsible business uh, conduct or corporate social responsibility. Uh, and then the the other way I, I come at it is on um, from the perspective of compliance and accountability. Uh, but you base this book on ethics rather than um, you, you kind of flip it, I think. You, um, you come at it from ethics rather than from responsibility and conduct or from compliance and accountability. And I was wondering um, if you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not a, uh, I was never a philosophy major, but I was interested in looking at what, what do we mean when we use the word ethics, right? What does that mean to Kant or Aristotle or Nietzsche or the quick, simple examples I give in the book? And I think I mentioned Hobbes as well and uh, get into the legal theorist, but um, just the, the different approaches, right? Why do we have such a different understanding of the word ethics or, or morality even when, when it comes to uh, that discussion about business ethics and legal ethics. If we can't even begin at understanding ethics as a, as a common term, right? We have different understandings of that word. Um, I felt the need to kind of take it back to uh, the philosophers, although not in a way that I think is uh, complicated or too complex. I try to be rather uh, simple with that, um, with the definitions. Okay, so is ethics more like right conduct, the, 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 the starting point? Is, mm -hmm. is that how you take ethics? So kind of a, a Kantian understanding, <laughs> um, I, I guess. I think actually my ethics doesn't really fit into any of those. And something I, I briefly discuss in the book, and I, I don't want to get too much into, but I, I do mention religion and ethics. And is that where people get their um, foundations for their ethical, uh, you know, kind of stances and morality? But I am a Hindu, and that very much informs um, my conduct and what I view to be ethical. But again, I don't get into that in the book. And I think it, you can understand how I interpret my religion just as more of um, what's common in a lot of religions of kind of do unto others. And if you do good, you will get good back, right? If you think about karma and dharma. So that kind of understanding um, right. and, and not really fitting into, I guess, Kant or Aristotle or any of that. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's actually quite useful. Uh, people, and, and you mentioned this earlier, um, one of the, the things that, and, and certainly I've, I've discovered this in my own teaching, that tends to be somewhat challenging for students to begin to open themselves up to this discussion is the remoteness of starting from a philosophical perspective, uh, which for students who have not been immersed in this from the time they were very young appears is even though it's not foreign, the, the structures of the and the language of a philosophical discourse tends to be somewhat off-putting. But starting as you do from sources that they know, things that, that are already heavily embedded and from out of which they can begin to reason and then comfortably then look at other ethical systems around them, um, I think makes a lot more sense and makes the, uh, the materials far more approachable. Right. So, so, yeah, so that was that was really, really quite, quite good. So why case studies? Yeah, um, I, I've used case studies in my teachings for years um, in, in business associations, just using I originally started using old exams. 
for my current students. And so I'd go through the um, exam with them. I thought, how can I make this more, um, have a shorter, quick version we can go through in classes. I think that practical application of knowledge is really important as much as we can have um, more of a hands-on approach or uh, experiential, whatever word you want there for legal education, something that is a bit more um, practical rather than just, you know, thinking about law in the abstract. So being able to go through a case study and having students be able to have that discussion, even in my Zoom classrooms, I've used breakout rooms so they can have a discussion in their smaller group and then we get back together as a bigger group. And we have a place to kind of start that discussion rather than in the abstract to think about, well, how would you work through this problem? What do you think is the right um, kind of solution or approach, right? To have that starting point for a discussion that is actually bigger than the case study. Okay, so here's a question for you. Um, and and I've, I've always wondered uh, what other people's take was on this. So in a case study, for example, when you've got clients and lawyers, are their duties, their approaches and the solutions always going to be the same? Or are, are there instances where uh, the, ethic, the ethical dilemma as applied to a client may leave the client uh, in a direction that's very different from the ethical duty obligation and manifestation of the lawyer, of the, the counselor. Yeah, um, and I do talk about this in the book, right, that the, the ethical lawyer has um, responsibilities to so many different um, individuals, right, to think about your duty to your clients, your duty to the law society or for this context, Law Society of Ontario or whatever governing body regulates lawyers in your jurisdiction. And um, to think about almost the duty to yourself, right? And the duty to like the firm or wherever you're working, to your employer, um, beyond just your client. If you think of the client as the employer or the law firm as the employer or in-house counsel and your obligations to what you think is right. So um, it, it, to me, it's that kind of mix of all those. I don't know if I've answered your question, but it is a difficult balancing act when you think of all the different uh, duties that one individual lawyer could actually have towards so many different um, and stakeholders, right? To use a corporate kind of governance term that is applicable here, to think about all those to whom you owe a duty, who, who kind of uh, gets priority, I guess, is more the issue. Right. And, and it would, of course, be the, the same problem that's faced by the client, but perhaps to a different set of stakeholders. So the, the lawyers, the, the way the lawyer values and understands his reciprocal relationships to that universe of actors mm -hmm. uh, to whom there is uh, ethical obligations, either direct or indirect, may be very different um, in, in terms of directness or indirectness from what the, the client uh, may be looking at. Although they may, it, you know, when you take this out far enough, they all share substantially the same, but in different ways so that a, a client's ethical obligation to the, his customers, for example, or to his employees or to the banks uh, from which he is, is getting money or to his, uh, his uh, investors may be felt, the ethical consequences of which may be felt and understood differently than the way the lawyer as a counselor would feel mm -hmm. that both as a lawyer to the client and then as a lawyer to the client in the context of the situation in which the client finds herself and for which she needs the counsel of, of the lawyer. And, and that I think um, in, in some of your case studies is brought out really quite nicely. 
Thank you. Yeah, the, the client has obligations. And, and in that context, you have a corporate client. Um, I'm just thinking, and I do talk about this in the book as well, this notion that business people are not regulated in the same way that we regulate doctors and lawyers. So they don't have that corresponding um, kind of professional obligation. Um, so it becomes more uh, difficult, I guess, that or the, the burden is greater on the lawyer worrying about possibly getting disbarred or facing discipline to a lesser extent than disbarment um, rather than the client. They could lose their job in the corporate context and, and be banned from certain, you know, um, under securities regulation, possibly they could face sanctions, but uh, they could continue being a business person versus the lawyer could potentially lose the chance to be a lawyer, right? Now that's really interesting. And, and the, the case studies bring this out in, in quite interesting ways. And it brings me back to, to, the, um, to my discussion uh, or my suggestion about the, the role of accountability, because in a sense what you're suggesting, and you bring this out really nicely in the book, is that different structures and sources of accountability will have significant effects on the way in which the accountable party then structures her engagement with ethics in a relationship with accountability as well as a relationship with the object of, of ethics so business people and lawyers have different accountability structures uh, business people to some extent regulatory and to some extent market oriented the lawyers deeply regulatory but regulatory not just administratively but with respect to the whole uh, you know legal judicial apparatus and there's there's bound to be differences at least in touch right in emphasis um that then makes conversations between the, the two of them much richer although uh exasperatingly uh, <laughs> unsolvable true <laughs> Um, and, and you, you come across sometimes lawyers feel like they can give business advice. I, I have those corporate lawyer friends who think they're giving business advice to their clients. And it's like, ah, do, do the clients really want to hear that? I don't know. Well, that's right. And then, of course, the, the lawyer, that same lawyer might look uh, somewhat askance at the uh, business person who then gives her legal advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Doesn't go both ways. Uh, yeah, that's, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So what is your favorite case study? Oh, um, let me remind myself. I actually did like um, going through uh, thinking about um, whistleblowing and the consequences. This person who's trying to um, understand different uh, cultures and what constitutes a bribe, I talk about in the book, what constitutes a bribe in one culture might be viewed as a gift in another. So it, it kind of um, deals with uh, many different kind of issues at the same time that can we uh, go around saying that this kind of Canadian view or American view of the world applies everywhere, right? That if, if bribery is. <laughs> yes, and I was hoping, I was hoping you're going to get there. I was hoping you were going to get there. Right, because effectively, one of the things that I find just really stimulating in, in your case study is, and you don't hit people over the head with it, which is great because then it invites people to discuss things that ordinarily they get very defensive about, yeah. and that is the the sort of um, post global neo colonialism, right? The the presumptions of hierarchy in the authority of ethical standards that may be built into 
especially from uh, developed OECD states down production chains. And that, at least for me in, in my classes, it's not a difficult conversation, but it's a conversation that, that tends to be fairly eye-opening uh, for, for students, especially students who don't have that experience. And you wouldn't expect them to be aware of this given where they're situated. But when you begin to discuss, you, you have this moment where, oh, wow. And that I find really, really quite useful uh, in, in the book because effectively the, the whistleblowing and bribery thing, bribery examples is, is perfect in, in looking at this and also in having to accept the fact that indeed, whatever you may think of the character of these relationships, um, and the way you value them when you're faced with the, um, the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, and you need business from that jurisdiction and you know they can reach in, you know, you may find it ethically objectionable, but legally you have an ethical obligation to at least tell your client, hey, you know, what you've been doing for 2000 years is now <laughs> from the perspective of the other who happens to be somewhere else within a complex interlocking chain of, of relationships, which are all ethically um, in, in, imbued, now somewhat difficult. And, and I, find that, I find that really useful, but it's not just, you know, for example, downstream, one of the, the, the more interesting cases I found was for example, uh, in the context of surveillance and whistleblowing in uh, Germany and Eastern Europe right, developed states, but countries, for example, that have had long and unfelicitous interactions with the worst forms of fascism, of police state surveillance and the like, may tend to view what for a Canadian or American may be nothing more than the need for accountability by watching and reporting as somewhat not always, but somewhat more sensitive to the extent that that begins to veer into or look like the old surveillance and tattling under repressive systems that may then have a human rights impact. So um, human dignity issues may be viewed differently in the context of whistleblowing. Uh, let's say if, if you're living, the heart of this would be uh, the, the old East Germany than they would if you're living in, in Toronto, where you go, eh, you know, it's, it's no problem. You're living in Dresden. Oh, oh, I remember this. But wait, this is, these are good people, but it's, you know, and so those issues are sometimes worth looking at too. And your case studies really provide a nice way to, to complicate some of these issues as well. Yeah, um, I, I was hoping to just bring that cultural aspect, right, to make sure students understand that it's, it's not uniform or consistent throughout jurisdictions. And I, in one of my classes, I had an international student who was from India and said that bribery in her experience was quite rampant there. So she didn't even see a problem with someone possibly bribing in, in a uh, business context. Right. And then, you know, as, as an Indian lawyer dealing with the um, the, um, I don't know, the Botswanian company uh, mm -hmm. through whom the German company is now sourcing manufactured goods may wind up 
having to worry about these things in ways that she would not in the context that she were dealing just you know within india and then um, um working working downstream so just a, a a quick question i know our our time is is coming to a close what do you find to be the 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 hardest gap to deal with uh between teaching this for example to non-lawyers to your business students and teaching this to your law students i actually haven't had the chance to teach um the book to my students beyond using the case studies that um i haven't really gotten into the topic of business ethics. It is one of many topics in my corporate governance class. And um, in my business associations class at Osgood, I had a guest speaker who is very much a business ethics scholar to uh, cover the material. And um, it, it's it can be difficult to get into because students do view it as maybe too philosophical. And as I said, I try to make it as simple as possible. Just think about what's the motivation behind your everyday actions, what motivates you and, and what constitutes, I know on, on in the Twitterverse, uh, virtue signaling and things like that. When you, you say you're doing something good, is that because you are virtue signaling and you're you know conveying to others that you are a good person or um, kind of just what's the purpose behind um, your actions, right? What motivates you? And um, we have that discussion in the class, but I, I would like in the future uh, to possibly teach a, a pure business ethics course or legal ethics or, or a mix of the two, right? That would be wonderful to be able to teach a course that is offered at both the law school and the business school in some future time. So to be able to have you know a mix of students in one classroom would be a great opportunity. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. And, and, and something of a challenge. Although the, the book really does provide a tremendous amount of material in, in either context. And also, as, as we mentioned earlier, for undergraduates as well. I mean, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of meat here that can be processed. Although for, for my vegan friends, sorry for a, a bad analogy. There's a lot of material here that can be developed um, in ways that, um, targeted um, groups of students at whatever stage of development or whatever form of specialization they are pursuing um, can derive a tremendous amount of, of, um, of insight from. But it's that combination, which I just find so fascinating, that combination, the, the, the book hits this marvelous nexus point between accountability and ethics, between legal risk and business risk. Uh, between regulated space and societally managed space, between soft law measures and hard law measures, between administration and management. And so the, the, um, for anyone who is working in these areas, um, one can take these materials and you've been flexible enough in, in the way you've written this, one can take these materials and then mold them in a way that actually that suits the context in which you're going to deploy them in ways that I think are, are going to be uh, quite useful. And I certainly am going to be using this book in, in my corporations class uh, and likely in my corporate social responsibility and multinational enterprises class as well. It's a great addition, for example, to um, any in you know, a multinationals class to uh, the study of the, uh, the OECD 
uh, guidelines from multinationals and the like. So there's the, the richness here, it, the potential richness here for um, people who are coming at this from a variety of perspectives is really quite great. Um, and I think our, our time is coming to a close. Last thoughts, words. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you for your kind words about my book. It's, I, I find it so flattering to hear from uh, a scholar of your caliber to, to say such nice things about my research. Thank you. Oh my goodness, no, and thank you. And we expect to see many more uh, additions and contributions in the field. And thank you again for letting me drag you on screen to, to talk a little bit about this. And uh, hopefully we will do this again soon. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. All right, Bye. thank you.